This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Isaiah 30, verses 15 through 18. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet... The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is God's word. Please be seated. As Mike said, I'm Mike Betis, and I am not one of the pastors here at City Church. And I'm so glad you came because, uh, gosh, it's, it's raining this morning and uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and it's Ronald Reagan's 100th birthday. I mean, there's lots of reasons not to come to church. <laughs> pastors are both in India. That's kind of like a get-out-of-church-free card right there when both pastors are out of the, across the globe somewhere else. But you came anyway, and I'm, I'm glad for that. And um, when, they, when they knew that they were both going to gone, Rue and Ted asked me to preach, and I really didn't have a good reason to say no. Uh, and to be honest with you, that's kind of been the, one of the ordering rubrics for me in ministry of... If I'm asked to write or teach or preach or minister and I, I, I don't have a good reason to say no, I say, okay, God, just use me then. So I had to say, oh, okay, I, okay, I'll do it. Uh, I'd rather, to be honest with you, stand in front of 107th and 8th graders every day than stand in front of a bunch of adults, but uh, you're my friends and that's good. But having said that, I also have to say that I kind of feel, first time in front of City Church, I kind of feel like Bilbo Baggins at his 111st birthday party. Um, At one point there in his speech, he said, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. (laughs) And while we've been here a year and a half, I I have to admit that I know half of you half as well as you deserve. But I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that we're friends. And let me pray one more time as we begin. Father of light, enlighten our minds to understand your word, we pray. Soften our conscience to submit to your will, we ask, and quicken our hearts to believe all that you tell us in the gospel and to live. We ask this by the grace of Christ. Amen. Now, Ted has been preaching to us from James, focusing recently on trials, of course, and... uh, As we press on through James, there's going to be about 50 imperative verbs, commands of how to live, strong suggestions of how to live under God's will. So I thought this morning we'd take a different tack slightly and look at uh, some verses from Isaiah chapter 30. But before we go there, I wanted to to preface our thoughts in Isaiah 30 with a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses As he's about to let the people go into the promised land, he says this to them. He says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. 
Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine homes and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow and your silver and gold increases and you have all, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hand have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. And if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you this day that you will surely be destroyed. That is a harsh word for Israel. And it's a harsh word for us as well today. But that's sort of the context that we needed to understand what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 30. Israel found itself between a rock and a hard place. How about you? Maybe you're at a place in life where you're between a rock and a hard place. Maybe you're faced with the prospect of having to make a decision, and either way you go, trouble's coming. Well, hundreds of years after Moses spoke these words to Israel, the kingdom of Judah was caught in just such a position between a rock and a hard place. They were caught between the empire of Assyria to the north and the empire of Egypt to the south, and they were tempted to take sides to throw their lot with one or the other of these worldly powers. And this is the context from which much of Isaiah's prophecy comes. He was condemning Judah's decision to make a treaty with Egypt in hopes of standing against Assyria. Maybe Israel figured that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. The problem is, it's still the devil. Maybe some of us seem to be faced with making a deal with the devil, so to speak, in order to get out of a jam. Well, in Isaiah chapter 28, prior to the the passage we're going to look at this morning, the prophet called their treaty with Egypt a covenant with death. He wasn't saying you've made a mistake. He wasn't saying that was a bad decision. He was saying it's a covenant with death. In chapter 29, he says that God's unresponsive people would suffer humiliation for their disobedience. In chapter 30 and 31, he said that plans made without consulting God would fail. And yet in chapter 32 and 33, he says that he would establish his kingdom anyway. And in his time, Jerusalem would again experience peace. That's the context within which these verses here in chapter 30 fall. There were apparently people in Hezekiah's court, he was the king at the time, who were saying, we've got to go with Egypt. We've got to side with Egypt. That's our only hope. God was warning that true deliverance comes not from powers of the world, but from him alone. We live in uncertain times. Maybe you feel trapped like they did. Maybe you feel trapped vocationally. Financially, relationally, educationally, emotionally, there's lots of different ways that we might feel trapped. And we're tempted to trust in things in this world. But tucked away in this passage is some gospel hope, not only a warning and judgment, but there's clear teaching, light for our path, and hope for our lives. So let's look together at these verses. In verse 15, that's the focus what we'll look at. We've just read it. It says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust 
is your strength. There's two questions here. Where does your salvation come from? And where does your strength come from? And the answer is right here. But as is so often the case in Scripture, the answers are not what we would expect. The way God does things is seldom the way we would think He should do things. In fact, more often, it's exactly the opposite of the way the world would think. And that is the case we find here too, isn't it? It's exactly the opposite of what the world would say. It runs directly against the grain of our culture. Where does your salvation come from? Two words, repentance and rest. What is repentance? Well, we, we're, 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 we're a good group. We've been well-schooled. We know it's a turning away from sin, from rebellion, and turning toward another, turning toward Yahweh. But let's admit it. As a culture, we don't like to repent. As a culture, we would rather do anything but repent. As a culture, we would rather spin whatever has happened. We'd, we'd call it something other than it might be. Error of judgment, a, a mistake, a folly, a, a dysfunction, whatever it might be. We'll, we'll try to take the, the, the light off of our rebellion and our sin, explain it away. And one thing our culture teaches us is never, ever, if you can get away with it, admit straight out that you're wrong. We fall back on self-reliance rather than on repentance. And let's admit this too. We are, generally speaking, very capable people. We're very capable. I mean, I know a lot of you, and you're really good at what you do. We are gifted people. We're capable people. I was with a guy at the seminary a few years ago, and he was ministering to a bunch of people outside Washington, D.C., and he said the name for themselves as a community was the Omnicompetence. They were competent in everything. We're very capable people. So good at what we do, it's possible for us to live as if God doesn't even exist. To live, as one writer has said, as practical atheists. Come to church on Sunday and then we're the God of our existence every other day of the week. Our efficiency, our expertise, our techniques... Replace our need to rely on prayer. Replace our need to rely on faith and even on God Himself. In our, in our day, our culture has largely eclipsed the idea of, of reliance upon God in the minds of many people, even among believers, too often, because we have this hugely inflated idea of our goodness and our abilities and our potential. We can save ourselves. That's the message of our world. Many of us here recognize our sins that we need to repent of, but I think the one that is most dangerous that we seldom recognize is that we need to repent of living as if God does not exist. We need to repent of being our own God. But see, we've gotten into this thing where even if we, we do live in God's presence, the repentance that's characteristic of salvation, it becomes a works thing where you've got to repent enough and you've got to keep repenting in order to earn God's forgiveness. But see, that gets everything backwards again, doesn't it? We have to repent of trying to earn our repentance. We have to repent of our righteousness. Because we, we think that then God owes us something. I've been good. I've done everything right. So now God owes me. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you can... 
you can wake up in the morning and you know be spiritual and not yell at the kids and everything's going well and then and then, you know, you get a flat tire on the way to work. And you're like, God, come on. I did everything right today. As if our actions require his response in some manner. Luther missed this idea. He, he repented so much, he wore out confessors. He was famous for, you know, being in the confessional so long that guys would say, hey, John, take over. The guy, he's killing me here. Just take over. He missed the idea, and do we as well, in 1 John 1, 9, where the apostle tells us when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even the stuff we don't think of. So repentance is important. And, and I want us to rest not from repentance. I want us to rest in repentance. And that gets us to the second point here. In repentance and rest is our salvation. Well, this is a word that means the cessation of activity, obviously. It means emptying ourselves of self-reliance. This is connected to the other idea that we just talked about. If we're God in our own reality, if we're self-reliant, then we are in control. And that's a huge word in our modern mindset, isn't it? Control. If you have enough money or enough resources or enough expertise to be in control... It brings the unintended complication of this. Anxiety. Now that you've been told that you are in control, now you have to be in control. And if something begins to, what, spin out of control, if there are things in your life that you are no longer in control of, now there's this sense of failure. I've got to get things back under control. Out of whose control? That's the question. Certainly not out of God's control. Maybe out of ours, yes. But see, we've been sold this idea that we have to control our circumstances and our environment so much that while we're only, what, 2 or 3 or 4% of the world's population, we have like 98% of the world's therapists. A little imbalance there. It's because we are anxious people because we're not in control. There are so many things to take care of in our little universe, aren't there? Our calendars, appointments, schedules, conveniences, machines, lists go on and on and on. It's possible to run seven days a week full out in order to maintain control. But this leaves us anxious and restless. But God calls us to biblical rest. So what are you seeking to control? That's the question. Your, your, again, your vocational future financial future, relationship, status, popularity, security. What is it you're trying to control? And be careful here. I'm not, I'm not advocating some kind of quietistic passivity where we just back away and do nothing. Godly rest requires us to regain a biblical rhythm to life that, for one, tells us to do what you all are doing. Come apart on the Sabbath and worship and be reminded one day a week that you are not God. That God is alive and well and in control of his universe and you can rest from your labors and be reminded that he is God. It means being able to set something down and walk away, whether it's email or voicemail or Blackberries or Twitter or whatever it is, to breathe deeply and worship every so often. 
We need to be reminded by setting down these normal pursuits that the world will go on just fine without us. And God is still supreme. Salvation is not possible when we are in charge because we are not the Messiah. We have to get rid of our own little Messiah complexes. We have to, be, we have to abandon that stuff. When we rest, we accept our place as creatures in need of salvation from someone with a power greater than our own. And when we resist, and notice how close the words are. I noticed that this week. Rest and resist. They are so close. When we resist God's design of repentance and rest, we never fully understand who we are as his people. Friends, life in Christ should be a life of restfulness. Our hope is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. And our mind should dwell not on ourselves, but on his love, upon his beauty, upon his character, his perfection, upon his, den- his self-denial, his humiliation, his saving work of us, his holiness, his matchless love. These are subjects for the soul's contemplation, and these can bring us rest in ways that keeping up with our Facebook just simply cannot. Jesus said, abide in me. That's the idea of of resting in him. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Now, again, right in the next verse, he says, there is a godly labor involved. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. It's not just an emptying of of all labor. It's, It's godly labor. And you'll find rest for your souls. The psalmist said it too. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. So here's the principle. The heart that rests most fully upon Christ will be most strengthened to labor for Christ. Let me say that again. The heart that rests most fully upon Christ will be most strengthened to labor for Christ. And again, that just goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? You can't be strengthened without working out, without working hard. He calls us to to resist that sort of self-centered motion and instead to rest in him. From what activity do you need to cease? Where do you need to rest? Where do you need to slow down? Where do you need to relinquish control? In repentance and rest is our salvation. Second question then this morning, where does your strength come from? Well, it meant as a par- parallel to the idea of rest, the first word is quietness. It has its own meaning for us. A sense of being tranquil, a sense of lacking fear, a sense of cessation of speech in order to listen. And my, 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 what a need we have in our day for quietness. But who would equate it with a source of strength? Right? It's just crazy in the ears of the world. Who would, who would equate quietness with strength? Only God. I've come to a place, and I'm one of the old guys. You know, the beard gives it away. The, the gray gives it away. I'm one of the old guys. And this didn't come to me easily, but it, it's, and it's not because I discovered it. It's just, you know, you live long enough, you learn things. A characteristic of Christian maturity is knowing when and how to speak and when to remain quiet. Proverbs 12:18 says on the one hand there are those there is one whose words are rash like sword thrusts. 
but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Later on in Proverbs 16, it says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. As we contemplate strength and quietness, friends, may God give us the gracious maturity at times not to speak. See, our culture cheapens words to the point where they lose power, to the point where they become meaningless, but at the same time, they're still powerful, aren't they? That old playground adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Words can be like sword thrusts that we never forget and from which we always have scars. There's that old movie, You've Got Mail. Um, when did movie from 1998 become old? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> we're referring to it as an old movie already. And um, at one point, the guy and the girl are talking by email about zingers, about wanting to say something really good. Just get a zinger in there to somebody. And the guy says, I must warn you that when you finally have the pleasure of saying the thing you mean to say at the moment you mean to say it, remorse inevitably follows. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And then there's this little moment later on in the movie. I, I, I don't know if I got this quite right. It's a chick flick. I haven't watched it too often. They made me watch it. But um, <laughs> he goes to the girl's house, and she's sick, and she just hates him, and she's just insulting him, and she's just mad that he's even there being nice to her. And at one point, she's about to blurt out another insult, and in this poignant little scene, he puts a finger to her lips, and he says something, something like, let me help you not say something you'll regret for the rest of your life. That's good stuff. We need to practice the art of quiet. One of the early fathers said, I have often repented of things I have spoken, but never of having remained silent. It's good to keep a quiet tongue, but it's far better even if we have quiet hearts. Our day is characterized by frenetic noise, isn't it? I love that, that hymn we did from Marva Dawn. I, I knew she was a great writer. I didn't know she was a poet, too. I, I just smiled when I saw her name up there in an opening hymn this morning. It's great stuff. We live in, in, in an age of just frenetic background noise. Oh, for grace to be quiet and find a place to be quiet. Our day works against that, doesn't it? Every waking moment is full of advertisements and sound and beeps and noise and people and interruptions. And it's hard to hear the still, small voice of God in that kind of environment, isn't it? There's a book that's just out called Distracted. I don't know, maybe it's a year or two old. And this lady who writes this book is a prophet of doom. She's saying we're about to enter a new dark age because we're so overwhelmed by information and words and sound and noise that we can't even filter out what's meaningful. And so everything becomes meaningless. And we're going to enter a new dark age because of it. Well, look down below... Uh, we didn't read this part of the text this morning, but, but farther down the text, chapter 30, verse 21, if you have a Bible, it says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. That's the still small voice. There are voices in front of us shouting for us to come this way or that way. Do this or that. Buy this or that. Embrace this or that idea. 
But it's the voice behind you that you have to be quiet to hear that says, this is the way. This is the ancient path. This is the light. Walk in it. We have to cultivate a craft of quietness to be able to hear that voice and to listen for the whisper of truth in an age of noise and distraction. Some people are calm by nature, others are high-strung by nature, but, but Christians, regardless of their temperament, can come to God in prayer and renew their strength in quietness. The principle here is that in quietness and trust before God, we find real strength to live well, to live with a realization that God is in charge and not us. Do you have times of solitude? Do you have times when, when you get away from everything and you're able to say, wow, hear the quiet. It's good for the soul to do that. It's good for the soul to get away from, from all the attachments and listen. Not just, I mean, I think it's good for the human being, but especially for the Christian because we can actually be reminded that there's a God in heaven and his name is not Mike Betis or fill in the blank, your name. We live with iPods, earbuds, cell phones. We're, we're encouraged, go ahead, talk as much as you want. And we talk so much the words don't have any meaning anymore. A person with few words is often taken more seriously. We ought to get the hint there. Of course, we can be outwardly quiet and still inwardly babbling ceaselessly and complaint about other people, just not brave enough to say it out loud, right? This is why the quiet heart is just as important as the quiet lips. So, so far we have in repentance and rest as our salvation and quietness. And finally, in trust is our strength. Well, we come to the, the fourth of these points. It's the most difficult. Again, just as quietness is in parallel with rest, trust is in parallel with repentance. It's, for those of you who love this literary stuff, it's a nice little Hebrew chiasm. But uh, just as before, there was, there was a lot to learn about repentance. There, there's differences here in trust that I want us to get. It's, it's, while it's the flip side of repentance, it's, uh, it's not just turning away from something toward God. It's an act of placing ourself in the care of another. That's trust. Placing yourself, surrendering yourself into the care of someone else. Uh, I've heard some, some good people talk about biblical trust, biblical faith, having three levels. And, of course, when the academics talk about it, it's really cool. They use Latin. Um, the three, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. But here's what those mean. The notitia is the data, the information. In order to believe anything, we have to know something. There has to be ingredients to what we believe. There has to be information and data. Okay, that's good. You know, you ask a little kid, you know, what did you, Jesus die from across my sins? That's the data. It's simple, but, you know, that, that'll, that'll do for now. That's the data. But that doesn't save you. Knowing the information doesn't save you. The next stage is this ascensus, or assenting to affirming that it's true, that the data is true. The little kid can even say, Jesus died for my sins on the cross, and I, I believe it. Okay. The demons believe it. They're not saved. Knowing the right stuff, believing the right stuff, is not biblical salvation. There's a, th and, and this is a lot, of, a lot of people are right there. Biblical faith takes that third step, 
of trusting, of surrendering yourself to that which you affirm is true, of saying, I rest upon this and upon nothing else as my only hope in this life and the next. That's hard. That is hard, especially in our day that says, trust yourself. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled in John 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Don't just know what's true. Don't even just affirm what's true. Surrender yourself. Trust in me. This is what he's saying here. This is our strength. Our strength comes from this kind of trust. But again, folks, you know what I'm going to say. In our age of science, rationality, human capability... The, the sense of, of surrendering yourself to something other than yourself is seen as foolish. Trust yourself. Rely on yourself. You cannot count on anybody else. I know we've all been betrayed and whatnot. We've all been hurt. And so you kind of back in, back away, and you trust yourself. We betray ourselves by doing that. We can be as, 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 as efficient and effective and as viable. We can be in as control of our circumstances as we wish. But this is not biblical trust. We are called to trust in something other than ourselves. Counting on this other, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, counting on this other to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it's irrational in, in the world's eyes. You want to be vulnerable to somebody else? No. Yes. That's what the Scriptures call us to, not only with Yahweh, not only with God and and Christ, but with each other. Our search for independence and control leads to frustration, anxiety, and ultimately doesn't answer with satisfaction those big questions of why am I here What's the purpose of this trial I'm going through? What, what's going to happen after this life? Those, those answers are not found in ourselves. The answers to these questions are found only in God, through His Son, in His Word, through His community, the church, and His people. Judah faced the prospect of an Assyrian invasion. Maybe you're facing the prospect of some kind of invasion of some force, some uncertainty, some change. They face the prospect of an invasion, and Israel warned, do not put your trust in the armies of Egypt. They will fail you. Don't look for the rational answer. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord of hosts. He alone can deliver you, and He alone will never forsake you. So, friends, do you have decisions? Do you have paths that weigh heavily on you this morning? Where are you placing your trust? All the places of, of, of reliance other than the triune God of Scripture will disappoint us, will fail us, and potentially even destroy us. Well, we'll read it again. In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. But do you see what the, the prophet says right after that? Here is rebuke. But you would have none of it. Israel chose an alliance with Egypt and depended upon the powers of the world instead. 
At this point in his commentary on Isaiah, John Calvin says this. He says, We ought therefore to turn away our minds from looking at present appearances and outward assistance that they may be wholly fixed on God. For it is only when we are destitute of outward aid that we rely fully on Him. It is lawful for us to use the things of this world for our assistance, but we altogether abuse them by our wickedness in forsaking God. Our culture values pride and busyness over repentance and rest, but being proudful, being self-reliant, working harder will not save us. Strength is often measured by who, who yells the loudest or who, who is most independent. Our culture says, trust yourself. But look at the good news in this passage. It's there. Verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. He's the God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I don't know what, what forces, what, what Assyrian threats you face. None of us knows even for certain what's going to happen to us tomorrow morning, much less next week or next year. But I know that there are many difficult circumstances among us, choices with respect to career and family and future and education and home and health. As we move forward, as we begin another week today, as we are tempted God help us as we are tempted to make unholy alliances with the ways and the wisdom of the world. May God give us grace to repent and to rest in him. And may God give us grace to cultivate quiet hearts that can hear him, faithful hearts that can trust him, to lead us through whatever trial we find ourselves in now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been good to us beyond what we can imagine, certainly beyond what we deserve. We admit that we are so often self-reliant people, floundering around, trying to gain control of our little universe, forgetting that you love us with an undying love, forgetting that you order our steps. So God, help us to hear that voice. Help us to listen to the voice that says, this is the way walk in it. Help us to, to see that you are waiting to shower us with your mercy and with your grace. God, we need it. We need the mercy. We need the grace. We need Jesus. Help us to rely upon him alone. Help us to trust in him alone. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.